welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. In the middle of this series, I'm always reminded that, especially with, with who I know is part of our community here, that uh, at some level, uh, it's, it's looking into the future of, of what we hope will be relationships. Um, we also talked briefly, I didn't, I'm not smart enough to do the hashtag thing um, yet, but um, about what, what, what it looks like uh, to hear a call from God uh, to be single and what sexuality looks like in terms of singleness. So I'm aware that there are folks who are going to fit into the, that category. Uh, today we talk about commitment. And I'm also aware that there are those of you who have uh, been, been, you feel at some times like you have been set aside by somebody else's decision. Uh, and how do, we, how do we recover a sense of self uh, in, in that kind of an environment? It's always hard when we come to the text of Scripture to talk about what an ideal is without realizing that we have a congregation, including myself, who have at some level not met or cannot meet the ideal. But we still need to talk about it, don't we? We still need to say, this is what God had in mind. So let's aim high, not settle for low. Let's, let's set our hearts on a trajectory that will, will redeem relationships for a culture that, um, that, that actually, and you check it out, you can rent wedding rings. The prenups of the celebrity culture that says we're not anticipating this is going to last. So we're going to negotiate with attorneys what it will look like when finally we come to the end. Uh, we have a, a, a culture in which wedding rings are a prime turnaround business for pawn shops. So, so that's the culture we live in. And the truth is, in the Christian community, especially in the Bible belt of the evangelical subculture, the divorce rate roughly equals and is slightly ahead of the divorce rate among persons who are not even, even Christians. Um, that said, what do, what, do we, what do we say? Oh, well. No, we don't say that. We say we want to do better. We want to be a culture, a community of commitment. We want, to, we want to at least talk about and pray into and celebrate the kinds of marriage that God had in mind when he invented it in the first place because he chose it as the prime model of his um, eternal commitment to us. We are the bride of Christ as the church. So the models that we're talking about here in terms of sexuality and relationships and marriage go beyond simply talking about the topic. It says something to the world. And so it, with that in mind, uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, look at it, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 8. We're going to be uh, looking at three or four verses here that celebrate um, this, um, this gift that God has given us in sexuality within the context of marriage. So we're going to pick it up at verse, uh, verse 5. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, we have some available for you uh, in, at the front, and uh, please feel free to uh, come and get one of those. Uh, it, it, but we're on Song of Solomon chapter 8. 
uh, beginning with verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I'm going to go back and just walk through that uh, first couple of, first slide if we could, Alyssa. So, so this is a, an image from uh, the third chapter. There when we saw she and he going out into the desert, into the, into the place of intimacy, into the place of retreat, It was at the beginning of their journey into relationship. And now we see them coming up from the desert, up from that place of intimacy. So so the celebration of their marriage uh, and sexual intimacy, this is the image of the desert, of the the place of intimacy, of the place, if you will, of, of, of retreat. And now she and her husband are coming up from this desert. And notice the intimacy of the relationship in a culture that maintained physical distance. She is leaning on her lover. This is a, a mark, an indicator of, their, of, their, of the intimacy that they have begun. They are beginning to lean in to one another. Marriage is about, I have your back. I have, I have your reputation in my hands. I have, um, my position is to protect you. And that's a, a, a mutual thing, Right? Where, where, where marriage is, is fundamentally in, in this imagery here uh, about a husband who, who stands with and beside and for his wife and a wife who stands with and beside and for her husband. Where we recognize that at least there is one person in the world, in a world of hostility and hatred, in a world in which we feel like we're failures, in a world sometimes... Like it seems we can't get anything quite right. There is at least one person who is committed to us and who has given his or her word that they will be on our team. That's the idea that we're getting here in this first image. So they have this. Now, now the, the imagery of the Song of Solomon, as you know, is, is highly sexual in orientation. So, so this is a relationship that now has, has begun to be defined by commitment and covenant and so on and so forth. They have engaged in sexual relationships under the covenant of their marriage. And now their relationship is, being to, is beginning to be shaped by that move to oneness. So they're leaning into one another. And then she uses an interesting image, three of them. Under the apple tree I roused you, and you know from what Darren's talked about that this is an image of sexuality. Under the apple tree I roused you. But then she says, there your mother conceived you. She was in labor and gave you birth. Do you notice the shift that is talking about? This is not, remember how Song of Solomon works with these these images fading in and out. So here she's got this image of their own sexual intimacy. But within that same framework and understanding that sexuality is not just about pleasure. It's about pregnancy. It's about future. It's about conception. And she is saying, you recognize, don't you, 
that we have taken a move. We have moved beyond simple sexual pleasure in our marriage relationship. And we have joined. I have joined the company of women. She is not alluding necessarily to her own pregnancy in this moment, but she's saying sexuality is about future. It's about children. In fact, I will, I will suggest if you separate sexual intimacy from the possibility of pregnancy, you change the nature of sexual intimacy. You end up almost inevitably reducing it solely to, solely to pleasure. And with that, you lose the intimacy that is supposed to be fundamental to it. I, 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 I get why persons do that, in a, but I'm saying if we make that decision, then we need to say, how are we going to restore sexuality to the function for which God intended in the first place? Which is about more than babies, but it includes that possibility, right? One of my favorite memes coming out of this whole thing is, uh, sex won't make you a woman, but it might make you a baby. Keep that in mind, she says. Why? The verse immediately before this is the third time she has said to her followers, don't stir love before it is ready. Don't commit yourself in a sexual relationship to somebody before you're ready for the full consequential outcome of that, including the possibility of pregnancy. So she is suggesting here that there is a shift that has taken place in their relationship, that they are no longer just young lovers. They are young lovers with the future. The possibility of pregnancy exists and the reality of what they have done. She has fundamentally changed. He has not to the same degree. When a woman engages in sexual relationship, according to the text here, something fundamentally shifts in her sense of self. It's not just about the loss of virginity, because she didn't lose it. She gave it to him, having earned the right in covenant. It is also joining the company of women, the possibility of pregnancy, becoming a mother, and it's a game changer for her. So she says... Let's go on to the next one, please. Place me like a seal over your heart. This is the only possible outcome that makes that previous slide possible. Because we have joined this kind of community, the possibility of pregnancy, the possibility of children, the possibility of future, my becoming a mother, I need something from you. Place me like a seal over your heart. I'm asking for you a lifetime commitment. It's the only thing that will make what has happened to us acceptable, manageable within the framework of the world that we live in. I need to have you more than your word. I need, having given myself to you, I need you to give yourself to me. The imagery here is of that clay seal that is used to seal a pot and then stamped with the seal of the owner that then hardens up and cannot be broken without being broken. That's the imagery that she uses here. Place me, place my whole being, and notice over what? Like a seal on your arm, 
like a seal over your heart from the inside and the outside, from your heart commitments to your life commitments. I need to be the one for you. That's the only possible way that the kind of sexual intimacy that we have shared won't damage and destroy us ultimately. I need to have that covenant from you as you have it from me. We need to have a mutual protection relationship, a mutuality. Set me like a seal, she says. And this idea of the necessity of commitment, especially for her, now that she has joined this company of women, is so critical for her. So she says, this is, this is not out of the desire to possess. This is not out of the desire to own or be owned. It's a recognition that we have moved to oneness. And that has an exclusivity to it, a sense of, of mine-ness to it. Not as ownership, but as identification. She is asking him to commit himself to her with his whole being inside and out as she has committed herself to him with her whole being inside and out. Whenever I do a wedding, uh, the, the sign and the symbol of our marriage relationships in this century is, is the wedding ring. With this ring, I thee wed and with it, I pledge my faith and my love and my commitment to you. That's what she's saying. And it's more than just a symbol. This is, this is uh, uh, in some ways, I wonder if this clay seal might not be more appropriate. Because you can take off a wedding ring. You can't break a clay seal without breaking a clay seal. Does that make sense? So this is the imagery that she's inviting here. And notice it is her love that is a seal that keeps him, if you will, closed to other relationships. It's not, she's going to talk about other kinds of things. It's not her anger, it's not her jealousy, it's not her neediness. It's her whole person commitment to him that requires a whole person commitment from him. This is what she's inviting him to. This kind of love, she says, is strong. Go on with the, the next, oh no, there we are, sorry, sorry, listen, my fault. Uh, this kind of love is as strong as a death. Please notice, have you noticed the shift now? This is not talking about sexual love anymore. This is talking about being to being connection, heart to heart, face to face, life to life. We are not in opposition. We are on the same team walking in, in correlation to, to, to one another. And she says this kind of love is strong. So strong. It's that as strong as death. So somewhere in the wedding ceremony, I will say, Darren will say, until death shall separate you, or until, as we are faith-filled people, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then it's all over. Till then, it's not over. That's how strong she believes, and I'm going to suggest to you ought to be the kind of love, heart-to-heart, -heart, being to being connection that we share with one another. She says, it's jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. This is not the jealousy that comes out of fear or insecurity. This is the kind of jealousy that recognizes, like God's jealousy for Israel, God's jealousy for us, 
that, that when we are in this kind of relationship, the relationship between God and us, the relationship between a husband and a wife, there is only one person with whom we ought share that kind of sexual intimacy, that kind of committed covenantal love. One person. And she says, it is as, as, as strong, as unyielding as the grave. It's not the jealousy, like I said, of coming out of that insecurity. It's the single-minded, single-hearted devotion, necessary exclusivity. The kind of relationship, she says, into which we have entered as husband and wife, sealed by by the clay seal of our sexual intimacy, that requires exclusivity. That requires sexual intimacy excuse me, what protects sexual intimacy and makes it possible to engage in that with playfulness and fun and celebration is the fact that I know I share you with no other person on the face of the earth. That's what she's calling for. That's what she's challenging him with. That's what she says will enable us to continue the celebration without damage. This is why God said in one of the Ten Commandments, right? One of the Ten Words, no adultery. Why? Well, because you want marriages that are healthy and productive so that your children can honor you and you can honor your children, so that there's a future and a hope. So write this one down. Don't commit adultery. If those are the marriages you want, here's the rule of the game. That's what she's saying. We're not going to do this. This jealousy focuses on that. And this sexual relationship demands to be an exclusive relationship. Mutual commitment sealed in covenant is what enables it to flourish. This is how powerful this love is. It needs the protections of those five intimacies. It's like uh, when I'm walking with with people through this who are trying to understand uh, how this operates. I say, uh, I suggest that there's a difference between being an amateur woodworker, which is what I am, and a professional woodworker. An amateur woodworker, me, when, when we do joints on a, dr- on a drawer, if anybody, you, you know, like a dovetail joint or a box joint or something like that, um, we, we, we machine it so that it's pretty close. And, and we can get it kind of there. And then we fill up the joint with glue and clamp the life out of it. Right? And what eventually happens to a joint like that? The nature of the wood triumphs over the machinery, yeah? A professional woodworker, however, machines the joint so carefully and so well that it holds together completely solid without any glue. So the glue is just intended to be a seal of the deal. That's what sexuality is. A relationship that is so solid that it would survive in strength without it makes it possible without damage. That's the nature of it. And she says, this is why jealousy is an appropriate word. Sexual intimacy is the seal on a covenant-based five-stage intimacy. It's able to survive, she says. Look at this next, next thing. It, it, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. How many of you know that you're going to experience in marriage many waters? 
It's going to just one or two of us. Okay, fine. Uh, many waters um, uh, uh, can't, can't quench that flame, right? Rivers cannot sweep it away. There will be stuff that happens. I guarantee you there will be stuff that happens that you had not planned for. Life is what happens when you were planning something else. If your commitment is based on the other's performance, you won't survive the many waters. It's not about marrying the right other. It's about being the right person. Not finding a lover, being a lover. Because that's what is necessary in this. It will not, many waters, come even to destroy the world in that culture. And the imagery here uh, is of, of, of these rivers, these, these undercurrents from the underworld, if you use the language of the, of the text, cannot sweep it away. And it is without price. Had the commercial line not been so trashed, this would be a line to use. Priceless. Priceless. You can't put value on it. So this verse immediately before, before this, and again, if we want to just go back to the splash screen, uh, that's great, thanks. Um, again, reminds us not to awaken love before, before we're ready for it. Because she gets what kind of covenant is called for. So in, in, in this relationship, it is their shared love that has bound them together that is unavailable to anything anyone else. You will share with your husband or your wife a, a, a relationship. There are things that are available in that relationship, and I'm not just talking about sexual things, although certainly those are included, but there are things in that relationship that you will share with no one else. Secrets that you will know about the other that no one else... You have enormous power. And how do you use it? There are things that Judy knows about me and things that I know about her that we will never share with another person. We know how damaging it would be to our senses of self. She can hurt me like nobody else in the world can hurt me. And she can lift me like nobody else in the world can lift me. All I need from her, all I need is a half smile, and my day is made. Why? That's who I am. That's who I am. And that's who she is to me. Do you see? So this is, this is, this is not about sexual love anymore. This is about the kinds of, of, of love that grows out, having been sealed by that, that grows out of that, that binds them together per permanently. It's not about ownership. It's not about possession. We're, we're not married like this. We're married with full freedom to flourish, each in our own individual ways. We're on the same team, moving forward, feeding one another the ball so that we can advance together towards Christ-likeness, which is, as it turns out, the goal of marriage, not happiness. Gary Thomas says, what if marriage is not about holy happiness, but about holy? I think he's on to something. I think he's on to something. So you should not, she says, enter lightly into this time, kind of lifetime relationship. 
Sexuality is only one part of it, but you should not enter lightly into that, she says. Don't wake in love until it is ready, because the truth is, you're not ready to be married until you're able to be single. To possess your being with grace and gratitude and thanksgiving. This is why I keep on saying over and over and over again, sexual self-control is more needed once you're married than it ever was before you were married. That's what I'm talking about. Marriage is less about happy than it is about holy. We give ourselves in an interdependent relationship. It is an incubator to Christ-likeness. Discipleship, Eugene Peterson, one of, one of the guys whose books I read a lot, says that discipleship, and he's quoting somebody else, uh, Kierkegaard, is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I think that's not a bad way to think about marriage. Just the act of following through on a promise given will shape your soul to Christ-likeness. Just having given your word, keeping it, will shape your soul to a certain trajectory of Christ-likeness. This is necessary because life is about the unexpected. It's about things that happen that you could not possibly have planned for. A phone call in the middle of the night. A pink slip. A negative diagnosis. I didn't sign up for this. You're right, you didn't. But you signed up. So you signed up for this. Right? She disappointed me. He disappointed me. Yeah, you're right. But you signed up. It's not about them. It's about you. Is your signature worth anything? Are you a person who can swear to their hurt and keep their word? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I know there are all kinds of toxic brokennesses in relationships and in marriages and so on and so forth. That's why... In, in everything that Darren and I have tried to say throughout this whole series is be sure, get as ready as you possibly can, do the hard work up front, ask the hard questions, don't avoid any conflicts, keep pressing in. That's why, because once you sign on that dotted line, you've signed on the dotted line. Right? This is, hey, don't, 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 don't push, don't rush, don't, don't, if you can possibly avoid it. Because this is where you need to do the hard work. Because once you've given your word, then you, you've given your word. Because the truth is, every marriage has between five and ten irreconcilable differences. Let me say that again. Every marriage, every single marriage has between five and ten. I see some of you now saying, one, two. <laughs> Holy cow, we're, we're, <laughs> we're peeking out. At, <laughs> we're starting to ping the top end here. Why? Because you're not married to you. You're married to somebody who's not you. And, and now, you, now, now, now marriage is the art of the mistake. Marriage is the art of the difference. Uh, seeing as how I'm woodworking here, I think I'll use that one again, right? Uh, a, a, a craftsman who knows how to work wood... Um, told me once that woodworking is nothing more nor less than the art of the mistake. 
every woodworker that I've ever uh, talked with, and, and because that's a, a kind of a hobby that I've, I would like to, to have moved into more than I have, I, I discovered I'm, again, I'm a, I'm a technician, I'm not an artist, I, I know how to, yeah, but anyway. So, so I've sat and talked with those folks, and, and, and they say every single woodworker can take you directly and point to you specifically where they made a mistake in every project they've ever made. Woodworking is the art of the mistake. Every mistake, every missed cut, every short piece is an opportunity for new invention, new opportunity, new artistry, new invention. Now the reason I say that, five and 10 irreconcilable differences, is because at any given point, that's what we cite as reasons leading to our dissolution. Irreconcilable differences, have you heard that language? What does that say to us? What it says to us is, we can't get along with this person and they can't get along with us. Guess what? You set that person aside, go marry somebody else, between five and 10 irreconcilable differences. It's not about finding the right person, it's about being and becoming a person who can live with somebody who's not like you and who steadfastly resists becoming like you. <laughs> Have, if you haven't been married more than 10 minutes, you know, first, you're married to somebody else, and second, you are married to somebody who is completely and utterly unteachable. <laughs> I when, when Jude and I got married, our first fight was about how to do dishes. Because no, that's we, we moved into a, into a, 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 our, my basement apartment for ten or fifteen minutes, and and we had a single sink, and, ne and 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 so there was no problem. But then we moved into another apartment, and it had a double sink. I grew up with a double sink. Therefore, I knew how dishes ought to be done in a double sink method. <laughs> and there is a very specific way I know because my father taught me how dishes ought to be done in a double sink method. So I thought my new bride would be delighted <laughs> to be instructed in the double sink method of washing dishes in appropriate ways. And, and she looked at me like I had crawled out from under a rock someplace, parachuted down from a strange planet, and then she has this to say, well, when you do dishes, you can do them your way, <laughs> and when I do dishes, I'll do them my way. No, 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 no! There is a right way to do things. I know it because it's mine. <laughs> and she just singularly refused to be instructed. She is obstreperous and stubborn. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am the voice of reason <laughs> and civility. So I stormed out of the kitchen, didn't go back for two and a half years. I wish that was an exaggeration. How stupid is that? Do you, do you see? And, and I wish I could tell you that was the last time I was that bonehead dumb. The fact that we're coming on 37 years is a testimony to the grace of God and the grace of Judy. Can you imagine being married to somebody like me? That would be one other level of Dante's Inferno, I think. It's one of the, 
one of the things. This is what my grandmother says. The only thing worse than being a dog trim is being married to one. That's my grandmother. Yes, yes, yes. Because life happens, doesn't it? Life happens. I just about blew our marriage up seven years in. And she decided that her word was more important than her happiness. After our third son was born, uh, Jude went into uh, uh, what we finally, over a couple of three or four years, discovered was clinical depression. So for 10 years, back and forth to psychologists, trying out various medications. I didn't sign up for that, but I signed up. And I stand back in awe and amazement of the gift that God gave me in a woman who persists in moving towards health with or without me. I want to be on her team. Do do, do you see what I'm saying? And it's not about what happens. It's about what you do with what happens. Because stuff is going to happen. Kids are going to go sideways. Jobs are going to disappear. Finances, you're going to fall out the bottom end. Life, many waters will crash against the bulwarks of chosen love. Bring it on. Why? Because every wave that crashes that we survive makes us stronger. Pushes us to new heights and new levels. So this is not, however, just about sticking around. It's about showing up. It's about being present. And if I can be so bold, it's about growing up. It's about stepping in to what it means to be an adult disciple of Jesus first. And here's the, here's, here's the point that I keep on pushing. That almost every couple I do pre-marriage counseling with, at some point or another, in the early stages, I'll ask them two fundamental questions. One is, do you think you can take this person's word to the bank? Can you trust what they say? Because that's pretty much all you're going to have going for you, is their ability to keep their word. And then the second is, do you love Jesus more than you love him or her? That trajectory is huge. That's why we're coming on 37 years of marriage. Right? Because we have that prior commitment that reframes all of our other commitments. And Christ-likeness is more the goal than happiness in our marriage. Now, I will have to say that along the way, there's been happiness in our marriage. It's settled into some deep places and dark places and difficult places. But at the end of the day, we keep moving. We keep moving forward. Why? Because I really think that the commitment of marriage is also testimony, a metaphor of God's love for the world. What does this challenge us to? Because the thing is, when we get married, we start by seeking to change the other. Right? And then... After a while, you realize this isn't going to work. So you just kind of give up. And you go through the, oh, well, fine. Just kind of. But if you stay in, it will not be very long before you start to celebrate the difference and create space for it. 
and give thanks for it because you realize that I precisely need that difference. Right? I take myself way too seriously, so God gave me Judy because she doesn't take me seriously at all. <laughs> I'm, you think I'm, no, no. I used to ask Judy on the way home, how was that sermon? And she would say, I wasn't really listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what was she doing? Well, why weren't you? I was praying for so-and-so. Oh, You know? Or she was carrying on a conversation with the 8 or 12 people around her. Because she, uh, you know, if she keeps showing up here on Sundays and you sit around her, you will get a subtext of my sermon. It's much funnier than mine, but... Um, What's this about? You know what it's about. About becoming the kind of person whose word, whose character, whose integrity follows through. And I recognize it just statistically as I look across our congregation, those of you who are married, some of you are at a place of saying, you've just given up. I, I, don't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Yes, you do. You're going to dig into Jesus. That's how you're going to do it. You're going to ask him to teach you how to love this person to whom you are married. Because he knows. It might cause some carving off of the pieces that you thought were so precious to you but are unnecessary now. It will result in you growing into a different person than you would have been had you married somebody else. That's the gift. I look back now. And I am so great. I am a better disciple of Jesus because I married Judy. True. I think I'm a better person because of her belief in me. I have received an unspeakable gift. You couldn't pay me enough for it. And that's what this woman, at the end of the celebration of eroticism and sexuality, says, finally, at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about this. It's about saying, yes, and I do, and then I will. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, sit with this text, it, 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 it's, it's clear and given the fact that we have so many people in our community here who aren't yet married and those others who um, uh, have, have been in places of struggle in their marriages and, and uh, just the reality of divorce and pushing through some very difficult things. Lord, I pray first of all that nobody feel uh, shame or um, uh, anything other than, than grace in this space. Um, perhaps, on the other hand, there are some who really need to process through again uh, the hard work of forgiveness uh, as they try and, and recover from what has been done to them by somebody who broke their word. And I pray that you would give them courage to do that, Lord, that you would help them to lean into the hard work of that forgiveness. But then I also think, Lord, there's probably some couples here who are 
leaning into the hard work that marriage is. Some still shining brightly coming out of the desert, leaning on one another with celebration. God bless them and encourage them and strengthen them. But others, oh Lord, who have kind of gotten back to work and, and things are tough, challenging. They're facing some things that they never thought they would have to face with, with kids or with jobs or with money or with in-laws or with who knows what all personality differences that just continue to persist. Lord, I, I, I don't know where, where folks are at today, so I just pray by the power of your spirit, you would just sink into our souls. And we would hear the whisper of your voice and that we would respond. And for those, oh Lord, who may want to come and, and be prayed for, maybe for their commitments, maybe for their marriage, but maybe even for single persons to become the kinds of people who can give their word and keep it. Persons of integrity, of a character that is stable in the middle of the many waters, the many floods. So I pray, Lord, that as we spend the last few moments of our time together in worship and response, that whether we come to the table of the Lord at the cross and renew our commitment to the one who has committed himself to us, or whether we seek out someone to pray with us that we will have courage to stay committed in our marriages and strategies for that, or whether we ask somebody to pray with us, we recognize that in us is duplicity and we want to be persons of integrity whether we come and just receive prayer for something else entirely other. Just meet us at this place, Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.